series called Learning to Let Go, which is kind of a Pentecost series and Ascension series together. Pentecost Sunday was last Sunday. And so um, I wanted to get into a series that talked a little bit about both. And the reason why is a few weeks ago, I introduced you to this concept called the Pascal Mystery. And the Pascal Mystery is taken from the life um, and the way and the story of Jesus. And it starts with um, Good Friday. And it goes like this. Next slide. It goes like Good Friday is like the loss and when things that we have um, die, when things, relationships and um, our own things that we hold on to die. And then uh, Easter Sunday happens in this new life. Usually that's where we stop. We're like, oh yeah, Good Friday, Easter Sunday. But actually the church calendar keeps going because there's more mystery. Um, then there's an, a readjustment to the new and grieving the old. Sometimes uh, there's a new part of life where we have to readjust to the new. I'll be completely transparent like I was last week, readjusting to church and, and this church post-pandemic and in a new building is a readjustment. We have to kind of grieve what we lost and embrace this thing that's new. And that's a part of the, like, maybe we're already, we're in that, for me anyways, I'm in this, like, year of doing that. And then it's um, ascension. We have to learn to let go. Uh, this is best captured by uh, when Mary goes to the tomb early in the morning on Resurrection Sunday, and the tomb's empty, and then she meets someone who she thinks is the gardener, but it's not the gardener, it's Jesus, and Jesus says, Mary, and when he says her name, she's like, Rabbi, and, and then she grabs him, and Jesus says, no, Mary, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. There is a that is a pregnant statement. There is a mystery there. Don't cling to me. There is ways that the disciples during that 40 days, Jesus was readjusting them to new life without him, ways that they were not allowed to cling to him and the things that happened before when he was alive and walking among them. But they had to let go so that it made way for the spirit, Pentecost, receiving the new spirit. And there is this really great mystery between the letting go and the receiving of the new. And so we're in this series asking the question, uh, are there things we have to let go of in order to receive the new? What needs to be let go of where we're at today in life, in this world? Are there things that we have to let go of? And we started last week with letting go of illusion, being disillusioned, allowing ourselves to be disillusioned by God to let go of the illusion. Well, today I'd like to talk about um, letting go of the control of certainty. All light topics during the series, just want to let you know that all light topics, letting go of the control of certainty and embracing what looks a little bit more like trust and feels a little bit more like commitment. And I'd like to do that this morning by sharing a story about dating. I want to um, share with you a lesson in semantics by using the Backstreet Boys song, I Want It That Way. Yeah. <laughs> and I'd like to share with you three stories from the Bible to reframe what faith is. That's what we're going to be doing today. So before we get started, uh, turn your Bibles to Genesis 15. I'm going to pray. We'll get there in a second. But allow me to pray first. God, I want to start by just committing to you all of my capacities. And I want to really, my heart is to glorify Jesus. Be glorified, Lord. And as we're going in this teaching, uh, kind of um, maybe places where we don't often tread, I pray that you would be our guide, Spirit. Holy Spirit, would you be my guide? Direct my thoughts and even my intentions. 
May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O God. Teach us, in Jesus' name, amen. This week I was preparing for this sermon, and I knew I wanted to get into some stories from the scriptures. We'll start in Genesis and end up a little further into the Bible. And I wanted to get into some stories about what it looks like about letting go of certainty and embracing trust. But, you know, the preacher-teacher's dilemma is often it's hard to get into the the context, it's hard to get into the meat of the sermon. and You have to find a way in. You can't just like, hey, we're going in. Sometimes a lot of people don't really wanna go in to where you wanna go, so you have to lead them gently. So I was just like, how do I get into this sermon? How do I get into these stories? And, and so I didn't really know how to do it. I was stuck, like I usually get stuck. It's part of the kind of creative process, and so I was stuck. And so sometimes what I do to get unstuck is I use a giant whiteboard and write stuff down. Sometimes I use index cards. Sometimes I scribble. Sometimes I just start talking in my office really loudly. Other times I resort to texting the the teaching team and just like, help me get unstuck. And so I did the latter. I text the sermon team and said, sent him a voice note saying, here's where I'm going. I don't know how to get into there. How do I talk about letting go of the control of certainty to get into this sermon? And fairly quickly, Like right away, someone said, and that someone, being Melissa from our sermon team, said, you should talk about dating. Actually, she says this. You should talk about dating. Dating is literally surrendering all of your control. And there is no certainty. And it requires all of your trust and your vulnerability. And this was like rapid succession and um, obviously there's something going on there. And um, <laughs> so I was texting her separately. I'm like, that's a great idea. Truer words have not been said. That's exactly what dating is like. Also, that's what marriage is like. Also, that's what parenting, also that's life, right? And I, I asked her permission to use this and she said yes. And so I wanna share a story about dating. The year was 2001. One. One. This was many, many years ago, okay? This is the year that iPod came out, okay? iPod, not phone, pod, right? Um, Ashley and I had been dating for a few years by then, and we were still young and didn't know much about life, but we knew enough about life to be in love, and, and we thought we knew each other. That was until, you know, Ashley did something I thought was uncharacteristic, some, something I didn't think she would do, something I hadn't planned in our lives together, And that something that she did spun me out, like spun me out big time, made me realize that I didn't have control of our relationship. It made me realize, maybe for the first time, this was I really realized that I couldn't control another person. And maybe this was because we were both becoming adults and we kind of couldn't manipulate one another as we did when we were a little bit younger because we had been together for a while at that point. Or maybe we were trying Maybe we were just giving up on manipulating one another altogether. Whatever it was, I had this couple of month disorientation where I was hit with a conscious awareness that anyone I chose to be with, I couldn't control them. And most poignantly, I couldn't keep them from breaking my heart. I couldn't keep them from making a decision that I didn't want them to make. I came to this scary realization that they were their own person. And that left me out of control of half of the equation of a relationship. And this realization, this new awareness, freaked me out. 
There was this article in the New York Times this past week that went around my community group called, I married the wrong person, and I'm so glad I did. In this article, writer and priest Tish Harrison Warren writes that she strongly believes everyone marries the wrong person. And being a pastor for some 20 years, I would say, yes, that is very true. Everyone marries the wrong person. And then she says that she indeed married the wrong person as well. And then she hilariously quotes the secular philosopher, Elaine de Bouton, get your phones ready, quote, choosing whom to commit ourselves to in marriage is merely a case of identifying which particular variety of suffering we would most like to sacrifice ourselves for. (laughs) This is the single best marriage quote that you'll ever get from this stage. That is such a true, a true quote, by the way. If, you've, if you're married, yeah, someone's clapping. Married people, yes, 100%, this is it. Now, if you are dating, this might not be that inspirational for you. If you are not dating but still wanna be married, this is not inspirational for you. If you're less than a year married, this is not inspirational for you either. And maybe that's the point. See, what I came face to face with in 2001 at the wise old age of 22 was something we all have to come face to face with in some way or another in this life. And that was I had no control over another person, nor did I have control of outcomes, not really. And I could, despite all my best efforts, still have my heart broken. And so the decision I was faced with was this, could I let go of the control of certainty. And I remember being struck by the clarity of that question. I remember the wrestling I had with that question. I remember saying over and over again as my heart was ripped out of my chest, watching it beat outside of myself, that no, I don't want to let go of control. I couldn't trust anyone ever again, and I won't trust anyone ever again. Oh my gosh, you give your heart to another person, and they can do whatever they want with it. This is insanity. And then I remember finally, after a a couple of months of wrestling with God in prayer. I remember through a lot of community and processing. I remember coming to the revelation, and I choose that word very precisely, a revelation that I had to choose to be committed. And I had to surrender the rest to trust. Now, you might go, trust in what? What would you be trusting? Well, I would be trusting that God knows how to work out all things for good, that if you fail, that someone can fail, that you can fail, and the worst thing is not the last thing because I believe also in the resurrection. I had to trust that the marriage commitment, the vow, the covenant could hold the center of almost any marriage if two people deeply committed themselves to it, which is what the article is really about. And my point is, what if faith in God looks more like me at the age of 22, wrestling with letting go of the control of certainty, and less like a commitment to a creed or a doctrinal statement page of a website? Not to take anything away from that. But what if faith felt, and what if faith was supposed to feel and look more like trust, and feel more like a vow? and feel more like loyalty, to feel more like a commitment. 
And this brings us to the question of semantics. And of course, this brings us to the Backstreet Boys. I'm into this podcast right now, like really into this podcast, called 60 Songs That Explain the 90s. Anyone ever heard of this podcast? This podcast is amazing, okay? Um, I grew up in the 90s, uh, and this podcast is trying to explain the 90s to Gen Y people who are trying to steal our 90s fashion right now, by the way, or I don't, maybe it's trying to settle the once and for all debate that 90s music is the best decade of music in history. I don't know what it's doing. It's doing something like that or something in between that. But anyways, there's an episode on I Want It That Way by the Backstreet Boys. And before you judge me, I also listened to the other ones first. I didn't go here first. I listened to, you know, Alanis and Nirvana, whatever, okay? And I got here eventually. And I'm glad I did because it was hilarious and funny and insightful. And as always, the host, Rob Harvilla, opens by giving this really amazing monologue. He does this with every single podcast. He just opens up with a monologue, and it's so great. And he opens the monologue of this podcast with, I have just one question. Tell me why what? Now, if you know the song, you know exactly what he's saying. And when he said this line, I was like, yeah, I never realized it. This song makes no sense. If you know the song, they go, the chorus goes, tell me why, and then, you know, ain't nothing but heartbreak, whatever. And then I, you know, I never want to hear you say, I want it that way. That's the chorus. I want it in everyone's head, so I, I just, now it's in your head. And then, so he plays the chorus, and then he stops the chorus, and he says, tell me why what? To what does the why refer? I never want to hear you say that I want it that way. Who is the I and I want it that way? Is it me or is it you? And what is the nature of that way? To what way does that way refer? How does a song that starts off by rhyming fire and desire descend so quickly into semantic chaos? And why do we find that chaos so purifying, so edifying, so satisfying? What makes I want it that way by the Backstreet Boys math and pop and art and inarguably the single greatest boy band song ever born? (laughs) Genius stuff, by the way, genius stuff. And I'm laughing, I'm listening to this and I'm just laughing because I actually hadn't realized it until this very moment that that song actually makes no sense at all. The setup for the entire episode is that the song semantics are all wrong if you listen to it, but we don't care. In fact, more than that, we want it that way. We want the song not to make sense. We just want the song to rhyme. That's it. (laughs) Now, I bring this up because when it comes to how we talk about faith, our semantics are all wrong. And this wrongness goes unquestioned by most of us. And more than that, we're fine with it, but we shouldn't be. We sing and play along, but it's not right. See, we make faith a that word when, in fact, faith is a who word. And these are not just semantics. Let me show you what I mean. If you have a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis towards the front of your Bible, like literally the front of your Bible, We're going to meet Father Abraham. But when we meet Abraham, his name is Abram, and he's not a father, and he's very, 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 very old. 
God appears to Abraham, then called Abram, in a vision, and God promises that although he is childless and getting very old, his wife, Sarah, who's also very old, will have a son eventually. And his descendants, his grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren would be uncountable as the stars in the sky. Now, of course, this is hyperbole. Yeah, and you should get the point. He has no kids, but will have a bunch of descendants, more than he can count. Now, here's how the account goes. Look at verse 1 in chapter 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. That was who's next in line to inherit his estate. And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring or your descendants be. Abram believed the Lord and he accredited to him as righteousness. So God appears and says this, and it says Abraham believed. The word believe in the Hebrew is the word amen. We know this word as amen. Abraham, Abram, amened God. Now, typically, amen is a social cue that lets everyone know you're done praying, right? Like when we're, this is Junie, whenever um, I, she wants me to end a prayer at dinner time. She just says, she's in the middle of prayer, she just says, amen, just randomly. <laughs> We're praying, Gina, it was time for prayer, for, and I'm praying, and she's like, and I say, and then Jesus, thank you for this. She goes, amen. I'm like, well, okay, I guess we're done now. This is so cute to let people know you're done praying, but that's not necessarily what amen means. Amen is a declaration of trust. Amen is Abraham saying that he trusts God to bring about what God said he would do. He takes God at his word, even when it makes no sense to him. Abraham is putting his trust in God. Now, the thing is, Abraham, not only is Abraham old, not only is Abraham's wife old, not only are they past the years of childbearing, but Abraham at this point doesn't know that much about God. We're we're just three chapters into his relationship with God. So Abraham, this is the beginning of Genesis, not the end of Revelation. So he doesn't have all of this track history. And this is what God did here. This is what God did. He has none of that. This is like literally God speaking to Abraham when he's, when he's in a foreign land saying, Abraham, follow me and, and go and I'll show you where you're going to go and I'm going to do this with you. And Abraham just believes God and trusts in the person of God. And so Abraham's faith is not contingent on a like this is what you're like necessarily, or this is like the doctrinal creeds that I align my life to. It's actually more of like, I trust you and I'll follow you. This is the essence of what it means to trust God right here at the beginning. Credited to him as righteousness, a faith or a trust, an amen to God. Now, what does that mean, amen to God, belief in God? doesn't mean that Abraham simply believed that God was able to pull off having a kid at an old age. When Abraham said amen, he was not saying, if anyone can pull this off, it's probably you, God. I mean, again, like I said, it just, the relationship just started. 
Believing that God could do something is more of an intellectual belief, which has its place. That's important. But it's not what's going on in the story. It's not what God requires. There's something deeper, more profound going on here. Abraham's amen to God is not simply a faith that God was able to give him a child. It was trust in God to give him a child. And there's a big difference there. Because at this point in the story, Abraham is not saying amen to a creed or a system of belief or an intellectual understanding of who God is. He is saying amen to a person, the person of God. And the reason why we say amen at the end of prayer is because it's our final word of declaration of trust. We trust you, God. This matter, I've said my piece. I've said what I'm going to say. I've interceded. I've done this. And I place this in your hand as trust. See, faith is a who word. Believing is a who word. Trust is a who word. What we do is we make faith a that word. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that? And we spiral out in semantic chaos and all other sorts of chaos. And it's not just semantics. Our faith is not in a that, but in a who. See, when you have a faith in a that, what this allows you to do is allows you to become a Christian in name only, like in the way that you vote or the way that you identify as Christian. Something like you can see like on a Scantron or something like that, or a test. Do you believe that the Bible is God's word? Check. Do you believe that Jesus is God's son? Check. Do you believe that Jesus died for sins? Check. Do you believe that? I could go down the list and check, 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 check. And checking the, the, the Christian boxes off of belief that. Now the problem with that, it's way, way too easy. Look at James 2.19. It's on the screen. James says, you believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. See, believing that God is X, Y, or Z has its place, but it's so easy that a demon can do it. Oh, do you, do you believe that? Oh, demons, do, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Believe, demons, demons believe that. Do you believe there's one God? Demons believe that. And they're actually afraid. They actually shudder because they know the power of God. But do demons trust in God? Absolutely not. We can have a faith that just simply like a, a faith in that, but what we're looking for is a faith in who? Nietzsche, Nietzsche said this. Famously, he said, Christianity lost its way because it had introduced a confusion between stated belief and embodied belief. You can have a stated belief, like you can believe in something like the divinity of Christ, but what does that mean in your life? What does that mean when you make decisions? What does that mean when you are living your day-to-day -day life? Like you... you to have a stated belief and then have a, a, like an embodied belief, and when you separate those two things, this is, he said, this is when Christianity lost its way. When you're able just to list off things that you believe, but you don't morally adjust your life to the teachings in the way of Jesus. When we talk about faith, we're not so much talking about believing as much as we're talking about trusting. See, believing can be easy. Believing can give us wiggle room to think our way out of a tight spot with God. Why don't you believe that anymore? But trust doesn't give us any wiggle room. And trust takes work. Trust is a lot of work. Yesterday I was trying to 
teach my, my daughter, Juniper, how to ride her bike again. We got her a bike for Christmas, and she kind of goes to it every so often, and like, she's brave. She, she would literally jump off a building. She's like, loves jumping off of things. Uh, if you stick around, you'll see her jumping off the stage. Um, she loves jumping off of things, but the second you put her on a bike, she completely feels out of control and freaks out. So yesterday, she kind of got this wild hair. She's like, Dad, I want to ride my bike. I'm like, let's do it. So we get on her bike, and she's on her bike, and she has a, one toe down. And I'm like, okay, Junie, okay, both feet on the pedals, and um, you're going to balance. So you have training wheels, and you have daddy, and we got you. Like, we, we, together, we're going to work, and you won't fall. But she couldn't do it. She was like, I can't, I can't. I'm like, yes, you can. You put, and I was just starting to push her. I moved her leg up. She's like, and she said, I don't feel safe, which at that point, you're like, I'm not about to cause you trauma on a Saturday night in our garage on a bike. Like, let's just go eat chips upstairs. Let's just, you know, call it a day type of thing. But she couldn't, like, let go and trust, really trust. She just couldn't do it. Like, her body wouldn't let her do it. Like, this trust in the bike and in her dad behind her. And that's what faith feels like. It's like this letting go, suspending what we think we know into this trust of this almost sometimes mystery. Now, what do we let go of when we move into trust in God? We have to let go of control. Second story, turn to Mark chapter five. Mark chapter five, this is what, um, this is what faith feels like. Mark five is at the, the very um, beginning of the, new, uh, of the New Testament, second book in the New Testament. Uh, Mark chapter five. Verse 21, we taught on this um, a few weeks ago when we're in our ordinary time when we teach through Mark, but I want to go back to the story because it's, it's so important, especially talking about faith. Um, so the story, I'm going to read a little bit and comment a little bit, read a little bit. So, um, so it says in verse 21, when Jesus had crossed over by a boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered. And they were all around, and then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at Jesus' feet. And he pleaded earnestly with Jesus, and he said, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So this synagogue ruler was a, um, a Jewish, committed, devout believer, had heard of the things that Jesus was doing, And he goes to Jesus because his daughter, who we find out is 12 years old, is dying. And he runs to Jesus with a plan. Here's his plan. I'm gonna go and get Jesus. I'm gonna bring him over to our house. He's gonna lay his hands on our daughter and be well. So he goes to Jesus full on with a plan. And then Jesus agrees. So Jesus went with him, verse 24, and a large crowd followed and pressed around him. And so every time Jesus was traveling throughout Galilee and in his teaching ministry, he would gather these huge, huge crowds, not just because um, he was a, an insanely gifted teacher, but because signs and wonders followed him as well. The, the kingdom age was breaking in when Jesus uh, was preaching, and so you would have healing of demonic people, you would have bodies restored. You would, I mean, you would have all sorts of miraculous encounters. And so people always like would throng around Jesus and be around him. And so same thing is happening. He's, Jesus is trying to follow this father to his house because his daughter is dying. And at the same time, Jesus gets stuck in this like, 
Um, I mean, if we're going to keep on the theme of the 90s, a mosh pit sort of situation, okay? <laughs> so, like, everyone's pressing around him, and he's trying to get through this crowd. And a woman who was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, there's this 12 years um, sympathico going on here. This is kind of a beautiful way of telling the story. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and spent all she had. Instead of getting better, she got worse. Now, the, the New Testament looks very favorably on the medical profession. So this is not saying doctors don't, don't know how to do their job. That's not what this is saying. Uh, Luke was a doctor. It was saying that um, this woman just could not be cured. Even with the best doctors, she could not be cured. And when she heard that Jesus was coming, she came up behind him in the crowd and just touched his cloak. He, he touched the, 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 like the hem of his garment. Okay, and that's the idea. So she presses through the crowd. She doesn't need to really, he, she doesn't even want to talk to him. She just wants to like just touch the hem of his garment. You can imagine her like crawling under everyone's feet as they're pressing in. Like I can get, I can get in this way. And she's like going under people's legs and feet and just touches the hem of his garment. And at once, as soon as she touched the hem of his garment, uh, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him, which is such a funny statement. Like Jesus is there, and all of a sudden, I mean, people are pressed around him, and he feels power leaving. Like, like, power, like, oh, power just left my body. Who got my power? Someone got power. Someone touched me and just got healed. Something happened. What happened? And he's turning around, and he's turning around. Imagine this, turning around this giant parade, this giant crowd. And everyone's crowded around him. Like, what, is, what are you talking about? power and, and think, what, what are you saying? And Jesus turned around and, and Jesus looks like a crazy person. He said, who touched my clothes? And the answer is everybody <laughs> has touched your clothes. Literally everybody. We're all touching them right now. And the disciples say that you see people crowding against you and the disciples answered, and yet you ask who touched me. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Who, who stole his power? Who took his power? Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace, you're freed from your suffering. So this, this woman, okay, so, so Jairus and this woman both go to Jesus with a plan. They have faith in Jesus, but Jairus' faith was like dependent on like Jesus going to his house and touching his daughter and like it going a certain way. This woman's faith is kind of bordering on superstition, to be honest. It's like, I'm just gonna go. I'm going to touch him. I don't want to meet him. I don't want to talk to him. I don't want to get involved with Jesus because he's kind of a lot. I just want to touch the hem. If I touch the hem of his garment, it, there's like this option for like a drive through healing. I don't have to go inside. I don't have to like stand in line. I could just like drive through, get my healing and go. And I don't have to be called out. Nothing like that. So they both go to Jesus with like this plan, almost like we're going to control the way that we do this faith thing. But just five minutes into their attempts, everything gets thrown out the window. Jesus doesn't allow this woman a drive-through faith or drive-through healing. He says, who touched me? And she finally has to fess up. I did it. I touched you. And he made sure that her faith was not in faith and her faith was not in garments but her faith was squarely put on Jesus. He looks right in the eyes, your faith, your faith in me, right? this is what it implies. Your faith in me has made you well. Go and be healed. He knew that she needed this word of affirmation because she might go away going, I don't know if that was real. I don't know if that was really him. I don't know, maybe garments are the thing. I'm gonna start this like online Etsy thing, garments and the heel, like whatever that was, like I'm, 
And Jesus made sure, no, no, this is, I wanted to make sure that you know this is faith in me. But all the while, Jairus is still trying to get Jesus to his house and every delay, if you've ever, ever had to get somewhere in five minutes in San Francisco, you know this feeling, like every red light, every stoplight, people driving too slow, Uber driver stopping in the middle of everywhere. Like why keep going? Like we have to get somewhere. This is what Jairus is doing. Jesus, we have to get there. If we don't get there, something's gonna happen. And then he stops, like who touched me? Jairus, I don't care who touched you. I need you to go touch my daughter. I don't need you. Who cares about this right now? And then, while he was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? I think it's interesting that they call him a teacher. Teachers can't heal. Teachers can't do anything but teach. The teacher can't do anything at this point. He's a teacher. He's not a healer. Verse 36, overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, again, looks him in the eye, squares him up, don't be afraid, just believe. Uh, in the Greek, where this, this is written in, in the Greek, it says, uh, just keep believing, keep on believing. You came to me out of a belief, out of a trust, keep on trusting, even when it feels like you're trusting against nothing. Keep on trusting. And verse 37, he did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John. And when they came to the house of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and yelling loudly and went in. He's like, why this all commotion? She's not a dead, she's just asleep. And then they laughed at him. And then he put them all out and he took his child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him. And he went where the child was and he took her by the hand and he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I said, you get up immediately. The girl stood up and began to walk around and she was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished and they gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. They both go to Jesus with this plan. And I share this story because what Jairus needs to learn and what this woman needs to learn is that when you start to put your trust in Jesus, your plans go out of the window. Trust in Jesus is letting go of control. Where this woman tried to control her own healing and Jairus tried to control his own daughter's healing, Jesus says, you have to place your trust squarely in me. All your expectations, all the things you thought and the way you thought it was gonna happen have to completely go out the window and you have to trust in me and be along for the ride. The reality is when you place your faith in Christ, you have to give him way more than you planned. But on the other hand, you get from Jesus way more than you can ask or imagine. Jairus thought he was getting a healing, but he got a resurrection. This woman thought she was giving a, getting a, um, like a, a, an anonymous healing, but she had to go public. And when you trust in Christ, you have to lose control. That's the bottom line. And that might a lot involve a lot of fear for you. It's... It's really scary not to be in control. Can you imagine the fear that must have gripped the, 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 the heart of the woman when Jesus stopped and shouted, who touched me? I felt power leave from me. Can you imagine being put on the spot like that and having to go public? Can you imagine the fear that would have crippled Jairus to learn that his daughter was dead? It's a fearful thing not to be in control. Jesus turns to Jairus and says, keep on trusting. 
What he's saying to, to him is, entrust your daughter to me. And as a parent, that's the hardest thing in the world to do. Okay, third and final story. Um, Psalm 73. <clears throat> Psalm 73. I want to talk about um, moving uh, towards trust. Psalm 73, the psalmist begins like this, surely God is good. This is a statement that's, the refrain of the statement is over and over again in the Torah, the, 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 um, the Torah and, and um, in the Old Testament, is that, that God is good, that he, his plan is worked out in human history. Eventually, the plans of God get worked out. And that statement, God is good, had inside of it certain um, beliefs for an observant Jew. That meant that God uh, blesses the righteous and punishes the wicked, period, full stop. That equals God's goodness. God is good because he does not allow the wicked to get away with it, and he rewards the good, and he blesses the good person and the righteous person, and he destroys the wicked person. This is the Psalms are filled with this. Proverbs are filled with this. So the psalmist knows, surely God is good to those who are pure in heart. So he's just like, the righteous person. God is good to the righteous person. But then he says, but as for me, this is a bit of a confession. My feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. There's something that happens that jars this observant, devout follower of God. What happened? Look at verses three and through five. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. What he's saying is that there are people who act wickedly, who do not observe the Torah, people who live in an, in an opposite way of the way of God, people who are, who are unrighteous, and these people get blessed. Basically, what he's saying is that there's a way that I believe that God orders the world, and that's not happening. There's a way that I thought God was going to act and not act. There's a way that I believe. I have a doctrinal statement that says this, and I don't see the world going or living up to this doctrinal statement that I have. He was a very, this person was a very, very devout follower. He's like, God, what, the suffering I see in the world, especially of the righteous person, and the prosperity I see of the world, especially the people who have money, is not right. And it seems at this point to this person that God was doing nothing about it. And here is where his faith, that God does what he thinks he should do, starts to unravel. You might call this a dark night of the soul. You might call this a crisis of faith, disillusionment, maybe deconstruction. Whatever you want to call it, it's very real to this person. And the thought of God not coming through to what, he's, what he has heard about God is so distressing that he's literally coming undone. So verse 15 and 16, if I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. What he's saying is that he couldn't even talk about this and he couldn't talk about what he was going through because if he did, he might have caused another person to stumble maybe to question their faith too, and he didn't want to do that. He's saying that when he tried to understand all the evil in the world and how God fits into all of it, it troubled him so deeply, it was rocking him at his core. But then verse 17. 
Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. He can't take thinking his way out of, his, out of this, this mental exercise. He can't, he, he, he can't think his way out, so he decides to enter the sanctuary of God. Maybe this could be to worship, this could be to sacrifice, this could be to like one day, uh, better is one day in your course than a thousand elsewhere, this could be devotional. Whatever it is, this psalmist moves toward God. And when he moves toward God, he sees that he has this revelation. That's a very specific word choice. He has this revelation. He has this bit of clarity where he realizes that ultimately, ultimately, God would enact justice. God would eventually execute his justice. And the reason I share this and this story and why I think this is so important to the flow of what what trust is, is because when all the evidence around this guy seemed to point toward how God doesn't follow through on what God said he would, the psalmist still enters the sanctuary. The point is he moves toward God, not away from God. Trust is moving towards God even when everything seems stacked against you. Even when your life feels like it's falling apart, even when what you thought about God is unraveling, trust, there's no wiggle room in trust, is moving towards God. Some of you in here are struggling with your faith in God due to our world's problems, and there's a lot of them, maybe your own problems, the things you you had believed that God said he would do in your life that you haven't seen yet, and you're tired, but you're here. You've made a move toward God. And that can be the biggest act of faith in God, just showing up, trusting enough to move toward God. For the psalmist, this was the only option open to him because he had placed his trust in the person of God, not just a system of beliefs. So he had. He knew something about God, and everything he saw in the world was, was contradicting what he knew about God, but he moved toward God anyways. Now, if I was a good preacher, I might bring back up the story I opened with, telling you that I had to let go of my control and entrust myself to Ashley. But Ashley is human, and like all humans, she is flawed. But if you put your hope in God, he's perfect, and he'll never fail you. If I was a good preacher, I would end my sermon that way. But to be honest, I don't know if God will fail you or not, because I don't know the expectations you have of God and what you think God will do for you. I can tell you this, that God is faithful and that faithfulness will stretch to your disillusionment, meaning God is committed at disillusioning you at the right time. Every spiritual writer will write about this. The things that you think, like I said, I think I said this last week, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that one of the gravest sins is to know, is to claim to know God as God knows God's self. There's... Sometimes you think you know exactly what God is up to, exactly what God is doing, and God will go, depending on your stage in your, in, your, in your discipleship to Jesus, will disillusion you so that your trust is in the person of God, not in the, the way that you think about God. The oldest sin in the Bible is trading trust for knowledge. 
That will be our temptation over and over again, especially for people that live in San Francisco, to replace trusting God with a knowledge of God and this world because we can control knowledge. We can control how much we know. I've been reading Tony Fidel's new book, Build. Tony Fidel, if you're familiar with Silicon Valley at all, you know, helped start iPod, iPhone, started Nest Thermostat, and basically brought a revolution to you know, the networked home, that sort of thing. He wrote a book called, very new book called Build. And in the, in the book build, he says that a mentor told him that you can't be the smartest or brightest person. You can't control that. Some people are just born smarter than other people. Some people are born brighter or more attractive. That You can't control that, but here's what you can control. You can be the most knowledgeable. It's possible to gather more information than anybody else, and that's your edge. This is, this is the, the, the draw of our city. Knowledge and information are great and have their place, and they do. But what might it look like for you to let go of the control of certainty gained through endless knowledge to move towards trust? What might the, might the Spirit want to pour out on your life as you let go of your control of certainty and embrace the trust? Would you stand with me as we pray? As we close, just right now what's come to mind is um, there's a story in John where, uh, where Jesus gives his teaching and he says, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no part of me. And everybody leaves, like everybody leaves. Or like if Jesus is saying this, this teaching, I just... I can't follow him anymore. This doesn't make any sense. This doesn't compute. Sounds like cannibalism. Sounds gross. I'm not going to do that. Sorry, I'm out. And it makes sense. Like, hey, Jesus is doing something that sounds like kind of like cannibalism or something that we're like not socially acceptable or not even not socially acceptable, but just wrong. I'm out. Everyone leaves except for the 12, and the 12 are there. And Jesus looks at them and says, aren't you going to go too? And they say, where, where else do we go? You have the words of life. This is, this is like the beginning of trust. We don't, at this point of our journey with you, we, I don't, we don't understand. We flat out do not understand. We don't understand what you're teaching us. We don't understand what you're doing, but we're not going anywhere. You have the words of life. We do know that. We don't even know the extent of what that means. And I wanna share that story as we end and as we pray because I know that there are people right at this point where you don't know what God is up to in the world or you don't know what God is up to in your life or as you're studying theology, you don't know how this fits into your schema of life. And some of you are right now are very tempted to walk away, just like, I can't do this. This Christianity thing is bonkers. I can't do this. And I wanna, I wanna show you there is, there is a, there's a space, there is, a, there is room, there's a slot for people who don't understand but stay anyways that don't have all the knowledge, but stay anyways. They can't compute, but stay anyways. Jesus, I pray for this congregation that you would bring right now a revelation, and that's what we need, a revelation, an opening, a way in to trust. Would you do that now as we respond to you?